This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another edition of History Hack. Um, I'm really excited today. Today's guest is Catherine Fletcher. Now... According to The Guardian, Catherine has, we quote, a very well-deserved reputation as a specialist in 16th century skullduggery and intrigue. She has written books such as Our Man and The Black Prince of Florence, but now she brings us the beauty and the terror. Hi, Catherine. Hello. How are you doing with coronavirus? Are you, are you locked in? I am. I'm locked in in my in my high rise flat, which really wasn't designed for um, staying at home. To be honest, it's a kind of little bit of a temporary solution while I'm in the middle of moving house. Um, but you know, at least I have I have a gorgeous view. I can see the hills beyond Manchester, so that's something. We were um, we'd just been discussing today, actually, Alina and I, like um, the the most trauma that coronavirus has brought us so far. Um, Alina, everyone's burning stuff in Poland, aren't they? Yeah, so during the winter, unfortunately, um, the local people decide to burn random things in their ovens, um, which is not really great because it causes people sinus issues like me, for example, and the pressure, the snot, it's really, really gross. <laughs> Do you know mine? I've, I've had to start like this intensive care regime on my ears because we've recorded so many of these that my ears are getting all dry and crusty from the headphones. So like my cat thinks I've lost my mind. I'm sitting here like massaging <laughs> like moisturiser into my flaky ears. Oh, it's disgusting. I am no. disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, let's move away from my flaky, disgusting ears and move on um, to Catherine's new book. So, I'm sorry, I can't stop laughing about your ears. <laughs> it's horrible. Catherine. I scratched it and a, a, <laughs> the skin came off. I was like, what is going on? First world problem. I feel so much better about my Right, should I make you laugh even more, right? I was so, we, I work for WorkSecure, which is a fantastic uh, organization and um, that, that is uh, helping people build businesses in, in East Africa. And uh, we heard from some of our team in, uh, I think they're in Kenya, um, putting together a poultry farm. But the recommendation for social distancing in Kenya is that you have to at all times remain the distance of, of the length of a full grown cow from another person that's that's how they framed it in there I mean, they are in a that's rural funny, area you get, all these, you get into the father ted problem of how big is the cow is it near or far away 
I know, and also, I mean, a length of a full-grown cow, but surely cows are different sizes. I'd, it sounds it sounds rough and ready to me, but that is what the people in their local area are being told. Anyway, right, have you finished laughing now? Right. Can you be serious? I've, I've finished laughing. I've calmed right. myself down. So so let's actually get started with, uh, with, with what we're doing. So the beauty and the terror is much, much bigger in scope than your previous books. And the subtitle of this is an alternative history of the Renaissance. Why is it different? I think what I was trying to do was to get away a bit from the popular narrative of the Renaissance that you get a lot of the time. And certainly if you go on holiday to Italy, you take one of the tours, it's a lot about a fairly limited number of great men and great artworks. And, you know, that's all fabulous. I've done those tours, I've led those tours, I have a great time on them. But um, what that sort of story of, you know, what you might call your Ninja Turtle artists, the Michelangelo and Raphael and so on, what that story doesn't necessarily have is the broader context. It doesn't have the broader context of the wars that were going on at the time. It doesn't have the broader context of religious change in the Reformation. It doesn't have the broader con- context of um, at the beginning of, say, colonization of the Americas. And all of those things are happening in the same world and with some of the same people as are involved in the kind of standard popular version. So it's really about putting together some of the, you know, quite exciting research that's been done by the experts over the past couple of decades and sort of saying what does that then tell us about the more familiar world and the more familiar names. I wasn't actually going to admit that my knowledge of the Italian Renaissance um, literally extends to the the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles but the original ones not the redrawn ones they have nowadays with the weird little round heads Um, but let's stick with the actual credible (laughs) real people they've changed them they've got like these weird little shrunken heads now instead of the the big turtle shaped heads they used to have anyway that is not why we're here talk to us about one of the turtles talk to us about da vinci i think he's a great example of what you're saying isn't he so we remember him for his beautiful works of art and people perhaps know that he was an inventor there's a darker side to his genius isn't there that we perhaps don't usually read about yeah so a good illustration of this is when Leonardo da Vinci first is trying to get a job with the Duke of Milan, he writes this 10-point letter, which is a sort of job application letter saying, you know, what he's good at. And really in all the first nine points of this letter, they are, I'm good at, you know, this type of military fortification. I'm good at kind of war machines. I'm good at, you know, tunnels if you're going to besiege a city. So he does sort of nine things that he's good at on the wartime front. He gets the 10th point. So he's like, well, by the way, I can also do art and painting, you know, sculpture and so on. I can sort out this big bronze statue of you. it look great. But, you know, if you think about it, in the milieu of the time, it's as important or more important to all these princes to have people who are good at military engineering as it is to have people who are good at art. So that um, that wartime context, you know, Michelangelo is the same. He works on the fortifications for the Republic of Florence. You know, lots of the artists of this period, because they know about things like, you know, perspective and the geometry that's involved. They know about the kind of materials engineering um, from doing sculpture they've got these transferable skills and they're really valued for for that military side of their work Um, you say um, or I think it's implied in the book that da Vinci was a bit of a genius when it came to inventing weaponry Um, have you got any examples 
Oh, well, actually, if you, I, I was lucky enough to be in Milan um, last, um, last autumn. And if you go into kind of his museum there, which has got a lot of reconstructions of some of his weapons, and so some of them are almost like a kind of armoured car. I mean, these were not, you know, necessarily used or viable at the time. Um, but, you know, he was thinking them up. So you've got things that are like an armoured car. You've got things that are kind of basically like a sort of almost like a machine gun, which is got um you know eight barrels all spanning out so you could get a lot more shots off in one go he draws these designs for um handgun mechanism which is called a wheel lock and um, wheel locks are really controversial at the time because um you can hide them under your coat so it's a kind of concealed carry type of weapon that was considered you know really quite problematic because you know assassins and so forth could use these guns hide them away and pull them out in the street and shoot somebody all of a sudden so you know he's he's very interested in these new technologies, you know, alongside lots and lots of other things. He makes lots of kind of practical inventions to improve, you know, agricultural production as well. So it isn't just all the, the murder and violence, but there's certainly a big element of that within his work. And there's even uh, new things to consider when we talk about even the most famous thing that he ever did, the Mona Lisa, isn't there? Yeah, well, that's right. So, so a couple of years ago, um, Giuseppe Palanti and Martin Kemp um, produced a book on the Mona Lisa specifically. And one of the things that they kind of identified the course of that book is the association of Mona Lisa's husband, Francesco del Giacondo, with um, slave trading. Um, and there's a number of different kind of sort of pieces of evidence around this. And um, we know definitely that he brought a number of enslaved women, mainly women, um, to Florence for baptism. And it seems from the numbers seem more um, to be more individuals than he would be employing in his own household. So probably it's quite likely that he's not just um, a slave owner in the sense that slave trader there as well. There's also things where there's kind of circumstantial evidence, um, but perhaps, um, you you know, connected to his trading interests in the Canary Islands and in Madeira, um, where obviously you've got very strong links to trade in enslaved African people and trade in enslaved um, Canary Islanders going up to then um, Portugal and Spain. So although that bit is more circumstantial where you put the two together, um, I think it does give us a different context for seeing the Mona Lisa, for thinking about, you know, that portrait, you know, very, very central to the Western canon and how close the woman in the portrait actually is to this new world of um, colonial projects. You've alluded already to Florence, um, and we associate Florence with beautiful art, architecture. But can you tell us a bit more about what, um, sorry, about the massacre that took place there? Oh, you mean the, um, so in the court, in, well, there's, there's a number of, there's a, there's a whole range of different kind of massacres that come into the course of um, the Italian war. So I guess, I mean, the main one involved in the conquest of Florence um, in 1512 is actually the massacre itself is not directly in Florence, but it's in um, a town very nearby called um, Prato. And this is um, this is basically a kind of conflict over the rule of Florence between the, um, the Medici family, who were its historic rulers, and also the, um, and then their enemies in the city who um, have politically controlled it for um, the past couple of decades. And... Um, what happens is really in order to terrorise um, the Florentines into surrendering, um, 
the Medici side and their Spanish allies mount an, mount an assault on um, Prato. So, um, you know, they, they put up um, artillery, um, you know, artillery fire against the walls. They then break into the city. They go around. There is all sorts of killing. There is um, torture. There are multiple rapes. There is some really, really hideous methods of torture, um, you know, stripping the soles off people's feet. Um, there is, you, you know, you end up with kind of bodies piled up in the churches. You end up with a kind of desecration of churches. I mean, it's all, you know, really horrendous and it goes on for weeks and you know under the circumstances it's perhaps not surprising that the city of Florence ends up surrendering and but you know it's it's this kind of quite horrific warfare that is the backdrop for you know all the things that we now go and see in Florence the great art the great architecture and so forth and and I guess that was kind of one of the things I was I was trying to do is to put back some of that sense of terror um, and the experience of those sort of atrocities into um into the renaissance story it's certainly something that i don't consider when you talk about the renaissance um when we do largely thanks to uh recent lewd television sh uh, shows i suppose um we we look a lot at the medici in florence and we all have heard of the borgias in rome i mean but there are this isn't the geographical sum of the renaissance is it what are we missing out on by doing this yeah, so um, Florence and the Papal States are two of the large um, city-states of Italy, but there are three others, and those are Venice and Milan and the realm of Naples, which basically covers all the south of Italy. Then you've got lots of other smaller city-states, um, some ruled by princes, some of them are republics. So those are places like Ferrara and Mantua and Urbino, um, republics like Lucca and Siena, Genoa. So all these different city-states are in this kind of complicated political dance. I mean, you think this sort of European politics today are complicated. Well, you know, you go, go back 500 years and it's this sort of intensely complex process of shifting alliances, um, not only between the Italian states themselves, but also with the big European powers. So France and Spain, who are both trying to consolidate greater influence direct or indirect on the Italian peninsula um, so yeah Florence is a part of the story but I mean as I would say as well to anybody who's thinking um, you know when we get out of this current situation of going and traveling to Italy there is a lot more to it beyond the big cities you know Mantua is this incredible court um, with these amazing sort of palaces, frescoed rooms, artworks, churches and so forth. So a lot of the little centres are really kind of jewel boxes of culture then and they survive today. I've definitely been I'm doing sold. it. <laughs> sold. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Alina, road trip, right? When all this is over. Exactly. But how is this road trip going to work? Do I come and get you from England or you fly? I think you should fly out to Poland and do it from Poland. I was actually quite seriously thinking of doing, doing the whole road trip sometime and going from kind of London to Rome. Um, doing, I mean, a lot of people do the walk now, the Via Francigena, which is the, the kind of pilgrim route. Go all the way through um, through France and down, and they walk. It takes about apparently it takes about three months to do the whole of the walk. So if you really, really feel the need to get out of the house in a very big way when this is all over, though, I think that's the thing to do. If not, I join us on our road trip. Take Catherine. Yeah, exactly. we'll drink, drink oh lots God. of wine, eat way too many carbs, <laughs> and celebrate that all of this is over. Um, can Great I Great minds think alike. <laughs> yeah, go on. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, sorry, let's move, let's move on to, to a bit more about your book. Um, it also tells us about something else that we miss, isn't it right? So, so again, I mean, the kind of whole great men narrative leaves out a lot of people. I mean, perhaps most obviously it leaves out women. And um, so women are actually much more involved in the cultural world of the Italian Renaissance than I think we kind of thought maybe, you know, you go back 30 years, um, 40 years, historians are saying, well, actually women didn't have much of a Renaissance. I think now people have reevaluated that and finding that actually there are lots of women, perhaps particularly in the context of war, when men are away, they're fighting. Women are left at home. They're in charge of running estates. They're basically in charge of everything. Um, and some of them are very involved in culture, um, whether that's as poets or writers. Rather fewer of them in the visual arts because that's kind of more difficult to get the training. Um, but there's a very lively cultural life around women, um, middle class, upper class women, um, courtesans um there's a woman called Tullia d'Aragona who's um a courtesan who writes um a dialogue on the infinity of love in which she kind of both draws on kind of some very sophisticated philosophy and also on her own experience working in the sex industry so she's just one example um then we've got other people who are perhaps quite marginalized groups um, within the mainstream Renaissance narratives. So you have Jewish merchants. Of course, this is the period um, when we first get the establishment of the ghetto in Venice, which is not kind of the first enclosed area for Jews, but it gives its name um, to, to, um, to the ghettos that are to come. And that itself is established in a really interesting way in the context of the wars, when there's a debate about whether Jewish refugees should be allowed to stay long-term within Venice. Um, a lot of them have fled there um, to escape warfare. Some people want to throw them out. Um, some people wanted to keep them. And in the end, was the compromise was, well, they could stay, but they would have to stay in the ghetto. Um, so even, you know, all these words and so on that are kind of familiar to us emerge in this particular context of, of these Italian wars. So we had John and Emily Jordan on um, last week talking about their book War Queens and Emily was particularly taken with Katerina Sforza and she she thought she was a great example of a female leader in history. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think Katerina is absolutely fabulous. Um, she is um, from quite a, a, a prominent um, aristocratic family, although she herself is illegitimate. Um, she gets kind of brought up with the legitimate siblings and then um, she gets married to a nephew of the Pope. Um, and she has, there are 
there are these extraordinary incidents from her career. So, for example, in 1484, when she's only about 21, um, she's pregnant and she actually leads an occupation of the um, papal castle in Rome, the Castel Sant'Angelo, to try and secure her own um, family's property after the Pope dies. And then later on, um, she basically, um, this is a very infamous incident, which is often quite exaggerated in the literature, but which is partially true, where um, her castle is under siege, um, her children have been taken as hostages, where she's supposed to have gone up and stood on the castle walls and sort of raised her skirts and said, you know, look, I have the means to make more children, even if you kill mine. So, you know, it, it, it's a kind of, it's, it's probably a very exaggerated story, but it says something about a kind of her whole attitude and her reputation in the period. She did sound like a boss, but in, in all of your research, who is your favourite character that you uncovered, if you like, that you've given to us in this book? Oh, gosh, I, I, I've had it really hard to choose. I am quite, I, I mean, I think Aretino is actually quite fascinating. So Pietro Aretino, who is... Um, like, so on the one hand, um, Aretino is probably best known as a satirist, as one of the first kind of commercial writers who's kind of writing for the market. He writes all this really scurrilous um, literature about, um, you know, princes and, and people in power. Um, he also kind of basically sort of, you know, allows people to pay him to get a more favourable um, coverage in his work. And he, um, he, he writes a set of poems to go with some notorious um, pornographic engravings um, that come out in the 1520s. So, he, you know, he's, he's kind of this satirist and pornographer. But on the other side of that, he's actually also really interested in some of the new religious thinking that is coming out post-Reformation, which is not the sort of thing that you would think goes together. And yet in this strange world... Um, people have the most remarkable careers. And so he also ends up kind of having these discussions about the humanity of Christ, for example, and, you know, how we should interpret the figure of Christ. Um, he ends up writing about religion and, you know, engaging with ideas from the Reformation. It's, it's quite, um, you know, he is something you definitely have a very fascinating conversation with. We've already touched up on, uh, upon Florence, but we heard from some of our guests the other day when we were talking about war queens, these were really, really savage times. Yes, yeah, I mean, they absolutely are. Um, they are, and, and, you know, the context of warfare is particularly brutal for, um, for women. Um, you know, there's quite a widespread use of rape as a weapon of war. Um, so it, it, it the, the, that, that, is hap- that, that comes across. One of the things that I found, when, which I didn't quite sort of expect to find as I was going, as I was kind of working through all the kind of biographies of the military commanders in this book, was just how many of them just had, had also um, had allegations against them of domestic violence. So we think of that as kind of quite a modern sort of theoretical thing linking um, domestic violence to the then kind of violence in the more military context and thinking about how to theorize that. But actually you go back 500 years and there's a lot of kind of, you know, overlap between people who are responsible for violence um, on the battlefield and people who are responsible for interpersonal violence, whether that is kind of murders of um, people in the household, kind of what we might now call honor killings. And, um, or other sort of attacks against, um, you know, against individuals they know. I mean, uh, topically as well, people have also got to deal in Renaissance Italy with famine and disease, haven't they? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, 
there's certainly a lot of scarcity. I mean, there are poor, there's, you've always got a kind of chance of poor harvests in this period, but wartime really exacerbates that because you've got armies marching through and um, either buying up or kind of appropriating or stealing, um, you know, what food is available. So that's a problem already. And you also get new diseases. I mean, the big new disease they are dealing with is um, the great pox, which is probably syphilis, um, what comes to be known quite quickly as the French disease, um, the Malfrancese in the Italian context, because its appearance kind of coincides with the French invasion of 1494. And, you know, lots and lots of people, I mean, lots of prominent people come down with syphilis. It's kind of a little bit like it's sort of in a way that this the kind of roll call of, you know, high profile politicians these days who are self-isolating. Well, you've got a fair roll call of prominent people who um, were basically um, infected with the pox. Of course, you know, these days we know much more about what caused, what, 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 what potentially causes diseases. Back then, they're trying to work it out, but um, a lot more people, I think, will interpret it as God's vengeance on a society that has um, not been living in a proper Christian manner. So there's lots of efforts to kind of clean up the morality of cities in response to this, this plague. Um, and, you know, you get some quite apocalyptic thinking about, you know, what might happen to us and um, this idea that, that, that this is God's vengeance. All of these things are quite, quite internal. What kind of things, external threats are there towards Italy at the time? Well, I think at the time, what you've got in Europe um, is and indeed beyond Europe, is a lot of large consolidating monarchies almost extending into empires. And Italy, as one of the richest bits of Europe in terms of, you know, the local economy, um, in terms of wealth from different types of, of trade and manufacturing, it's a very attractive place to try and invade or, you know, establish some kind of political influence over. So you've got Spain taking a big interest. You've got France taking a big interest. They both have historic claims to the realm of Naples, so the whole of the south of Italy. You've also got the same time the Ottoman Empire expanding westwards in a very aggressive way. So um, they have conquered in the 1520s. They get as far up as Belgrade. Um, so then 1529, they actually besiege Vienna. There's various incursions onto the Italian peninsula as well. Um, so it's not just the kind of the Western European powers that are literally fighting on the Italian peninsula. There's also a lot of concern about what might happen um, if the Ottomans keep moving west. So that, um, you know, is a whole different dynamic as well. It's kind of, it's not just a straight um, fight between France and Spain. It's France and Spain and then also the kind of third um, pressure on things, um, which is the Ottomans. And what lessons do you think we can learn today from the Renaissance? Oh, gosh, I think like, so I guess a couple of things. I think for, um, for anybody who's kind of interested in history, I think one of the processes that are one of the things I've discovered kind of writing this book is that um, history doesn't take place in these kind of little silos and these thematic lines that we like to split it into. Everything is mixed up at once. So I think that's a lesson for people who are interested in doing and writing history. Um, more generally, um, I've been really amazed. Um, one of the chapters of this book um, focuses on the history of guns. So I've been looking at guns as a new technology and how states did not didn't manage um, people getting access to guns. 
And I find it just incredible um, that 500 years on, a lot of the places in, places in the world are still having exactly these same debates. Um, like, so debates around the problems of concealed carry of weapons, debates around people's right to have guns, um, debates around people feeling that they need to have guns to protect themselves, whether that's in a legitimate environment or whether it's kind of in, in a kind of illegal or gang context. Um, you know, there are things that, states were grappling with then that even today um lots of places around the world still haven't got to grips with and um, so i think actually we went back and looking at looked at the states that are more successful in convincing people to respect the rules around that you know there are there are arguments um, that that seem very familiar so the book begins uh, at the beginning of the 1490s inevitably you talk about columbus yeah and i think getting a sense of the Italian background and the um, interests of some of the kind of people who are well known as the so-called discoverers of the Americas um, is really, you know, is interesting and it illuminates a lot of kind of what's going on here. So you have um, Columbus, who's um, from Genoa. You have um, Amerigo Vespucci, who's from Florence. You have quite a number of Italians who take a real interest and who Um, Although the Italian states themselves are very involved directly in colonization and make really, really big careers um, out of crossing the oceans, going and expropriating land, going and enslaving people. And I think it's interesting to think about the way that they actually use use their um, particular Italian experience because um, one of the things a lot of people don't really know about um, Renaissance Italy is that particularly Genoa and Venice, um, had quite significant experiences already of running colonies in the Eastern Mediterranean and in enslaving people from the Eastern Mediterranean and the Black Sea area. So when, um, you know, Columbus and the like go over um, to this new new world that's new to them, um, and they, they have a model already to build on. And their model is, you know, the existing small colonies, which are through a lot of the Greek islands, which are dotted around the kind of edges of the Black Sea. You know, they, although we kind of often think of 1492 as this big kind of break when the shape of the world sort of changes and people encounter each other for the first time, um, there is this kind of continuity, the, the, these existing ideas, and these existing practices um, to build on. And a lot of those do come out of... Um, Italian experiences. That was really amazing. Thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us. I'm sure Alex and I will uh, be getting on and reading the book uh, as soon as possible. So uh, yeah, I def- most shit. definitely already feel like I can expand beyond the turtles now when it comes to the Italian. Yeah. <laughs> so you fixed yeah, me. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Right, and you take care. Join us tomorrow when you can hear Dan Snow answering questions for a change instead of putting them to other historians. Um, And then on Sunday, it's the big one. It's the Easter Sunday special with Sean Bean and Jason Salkey. So we have two of the cast members from Sharp, including Major Sharp himself, talking with uh, us and with our historian, Zach White, about what it was like to make the series and about how they fell in love with that period of history. Um, Until then, stay safe if you possibly can. And stay at home. This is Nighthawk signing off. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.